everyone. Good morning. My name is Jenny Chen. I'm the founder of Rudy Heals. Rudy Heals is a platform that connects individuals who want to reinvent healthcare using 3D printing, tech, bioprinting, and related technologies. And in the last couple of years, I was fortunate to encounter many experts and world-class scientists uh, on my journey with 3D Heals. And many of these individuals have risen to their occasion in a recent COVID-19 crisis. They have contributed countless hours and energy to design and create various medical devices to solve the current crisis. So my hope today is that this webinar can help our audience to figure out what is the most optimal design for them based on our experts' unique perspectives. First, I'd like to introduce my co-host, Dr. Nabil Kaji, who's a dear friend of mine. We've known each other ever since the beginning of 3D Heals. Um, Nabil um, is a practicing dentist. He's also a thought leader in digital dentistry. And very recently, he initiated and is now leading the effort on emergency COVID-19 3D printing PPE project called Print to Protect in Central Valley, California. Nabil? Thank you for the warm introduction, Jenny. I hope everyone pulls a lot out of this, uh, this panel today. I'm just so excited to be with, with truly rock stars in the field. Um, you know, the, the topic of design, uh, especially 3D printed design in this specific time is crucial. You know, we're all dealing with supply chain issues and need to pr uh, you know, produce very close to where our products are needed. So I'm very curious to, to hear what our speakers have to say. Um, it, it's been great working with Jenny to, to, to grow the 3D Heals community of collaborators. Um, I'm gonna start off by introducing um, uh, or handing, over the, um, handing it over to Nicholas Jacobson to lead us in what he's doing at this time. Um, for those of you who have questions, there's down below, there's a Q&A tab. If you have questions for the speakers, please put your questions there. If, um, you know, we're being joined by individuals all around the world, so where you're from, in the comment box, drop your location. Last time we were joined from people from Singapore to Mexico, Brazil, so we want to know where you're from. Um, uh, so with that, you know, I'm going to hand it over to, to Nicholas. You're muted, Nicholas. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Great. I'm going to share my screen really quickly. Uh, first, of all, first of all, I'll introduce myself. Um, my name is Nicholas Jacobson. I'm a design researcher at uh, CU Anschutz, Colorado University Anschutz here in Denver. And um, I've been working as uh, an architect. Um, my background is as an architect. And I have translated all of that technology and understanding of complex geometries into working with biomedical technologies over the last couple of years. And so um, that has translated directly into being able to help with the PPE right now in um, linking together all of the surgeons and doctors that I work with on a daily basis um, with an understanding of CAD uh, to be able to modify designs really quickly. I'm going to take you through um, what we have done so far. I'm going to share my screen here. And can you all see my screen okay? Yeah. Wonderful. 
Um, so my background is uh, working with Inworks. Um, we are an innovation studio on campus working hand-in-hand uh, in hand, um, with surgeons and, and doctors in our hospitals in early stage. Um, and now spinning off a startup for pre-surgical planning, 3D printing. And as a result, um, about a month ago, uh, we started a group called Make for COVID, which is a nonprofit <laughs> group, started with about four people. And um, today, we are over 2,000 people in just 29 days. I, I, don't, I think that number is much higher now. Um, we put the call out and committed to seeing what we can do. And we brought, uh, reached out to the broader Colorado community. Started off with uh, people in my neighborhood who had 3D printers, some of our doctors who had 3D printers in their office. And um, then it had uh, grown to uh, bigger companies who contacted us and said, you know, we can't do our normal job, but we're going to switch over our day-to-day -day operations to help you make uh, PPE. Um, and so right now, this number, it says 16,000 pieces of PPE. We're over 2,000 or 20,000 um, as of today. Um, my work specifically is we, we started off by taking the existing designs that were on the market uh, or, you know, floating around the internet and um, getting them into the hospital on day one. Um, these are um, a couple of the clinicians that I work with. Um, there's Brooke French here on uh, the left side of my screen. Uh, she hates this photo because um, she just got out of the OR and you can see the band marks on her uh, wrist <laughs> from, uh, from her gloves. Um, but the idea is that I wanted to get in and talk to the people who are actually using this um, immediately and get their feedback so we can innovate much faster. Um, we've got some firecracker doctors that we work with. Um, we've worked with over the years who can take any design we give them and flip it on its head. Um, and so we've got uh, Maria Cruz here, Dr. Maria Cruz, a trauma surgeon in the center who literally took the design and said, ah, it'd be much better if we flipped it upside down and I had a lot more freedom. Um, and then we got it into um, our cath lab working with uh, Dr. Gareth Morgan, um, and to see what it means in all of these different settings from the OR to the cath lab to trauma, um, so on and so forth. We started off um, with high hopes because we had a lot of equipment available, a lot of materials available, and then all of our materials dried up. So we had to pivot and we've had to pivot maybe uh, countless times. Um, so we've come up with a design and then the materials run out. Um, so this is looking when things were at its worst, <laughs> uh, finding what we had lying around our house, which is window insulation and these fasteners um, to be able to create a shield. Thankfully, things haven't gotten that bad yet. Um, but I've spent a lot of time working uh, in the hospital with these teams. Um, as you can see, there's a, a post that went out to Children's Hospital of uh, uh, me doing a fit test with Dr. Jenny Zablas. We're trying to have fun and be crazy uh, in and amongst uh, all of the, the seriousness, um, which is trying to create a piece of equipment that is intended to save somebody's life from a, a deadly virus. Um, the shields were really easy and, and great because there was no there's no liability with them, at least in our world here in Colorado. We're free to be able to produce shields None of the 2,000 volunteers are going to be held liable. But as we get into to, um, things that are medical devices, the territory gets a lot trickier. Um, we really hope it does not come to the point of having to 
do uh, provide PAPRs, but this, these are designs that we're looking at. What we found is that the hospitals on day one will tell us, this happened with the shields, it's happened with everything we've done. Day one, they say, no way, no how will we ever go this route of using the maker community. Day two, they said, mm, can you give me a sample? And day three, they said, how many can you get me immediately? So there's a couple stories. We don't listen to any of them we're making. We're trying to get ready. Um, the hospital has to tell a story of being stable and secure. Um, and I get that. Um, but at the same time, we, you know, talking with the providers, we know that these things are necessary. So we're coming up with designs, um, getting them tested, getting them ready. Um, liability is a very difficult aspect in this, and hopefully we'll get to that into the future. Um, we get granted some freedom because of we, we're a state-run uh, university and a state-run hospital, so we don't have to go through a lot of the testing. We can go through the hospital. And that's how we're getting things through. Um, we're working on masks. Um, our hospitals are really close to being able to run out of masks, and we went through a number of the 3D printed versions, and none of them passed our fit test. We ended up designing with a community member's uh, link design, um, the silicone mask. Um, we did a lot of testing. We got this um, uh, into the hospitals, um, all the way up to the, the desk of the CEO of university of uh, uh, our university hospital, um, and passed infectious disease and through all of the steps um, necessary. And now these are in mass production. Um, casting in silicone is not easy. Um, so we've had to go overseas, but um, now we've, we've got um, thousands of these being made and being rolled out right now. Um, one of the last things we're working on is a patient intubation tent. So the idea is that uh, for the helicopter crews and the Flight for Life team, could we put on a tent over, this, uh, over the patients um, so they could intubate and keep the virus within them, which is also going to help prevent the need for a lot more PPE if you can contain it. Um, We've worked with the, these, this is a mock-up from the doctors. Um, we've got some great doctors who are not afraid. You know, we've been working with them over the years and we take our design standpoint of using anything we have. And they have taken that on their end once, now that we're separated and um, are starting to mock things up, which really helps the team. Um, so that's where we are at right now. There's a video I wanna show of, um, of some collaborators I have um, at Harvard University who are um, creating a patient intubation tent right now using buttonholes. Um, and this is uh, where we're at right now. I think this is really exciting. Buttons are um, readily available and this material we can get at Home Depot. It's repurposed from uh, the window that you put over a basement um, window well. Uh, you can get at Home Depot and the whole thing folds up um, really nicely. Um, yes, so that's, uh, that's uh, where I'm at. That's where we are at right now. There's so much more to talk about, but I'm gonna hand it off. Thank you, Nick. Wonderful. Um, thank you so much for that. I think it's just amazing, you know, that, that catering specifically to the needs and how responsive your team is. Uh, truly incredible, Nicholas. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Kevin. Kevin, can you please enlighten us on uh, who you are and what you've been up to? Sure. Thank you so much. Um, first and foremost, just 
thank you for having me even be a part of this panel. I'm um, just very thankful to be included in a group of such smart and uh, high cal calibration uh, individuals here. So just thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of it. Um, again, yeah, my name is Kevin Yoder. I am a privately practicing dentist in Washington State. Um, for me, uh, being a dentist, uh, the most important thing I think right now for, for me and other dentists is just to continue to maintain uh, care for our patients. Um, there's a lot of restrictions going on in Washington state as well as across the country as far as what we can be doing and what we, um, what procedures uh, we're allowed to do at the moment. Um, but still, first and foremost, it's about taking care of the patients. So that's, that's primarily um, what I need to do. But at the same time, I have had more free time. Um, and uh, I'm also um, a, I have a history in computer science and programming and, uh, and things like that. So I'm going to do a quick screen share as well. And I'll kind of show you what I've been up to. So we kind of went over the, the background there. I'm a dentist. Um, I do have my degree in computer science. Um, I also have developed a piece of software um, that allows dentists to do their own dental CAD work uh, to make 3D printable pieces and parts for their patients. Um, I love technology just in general, all the way around, uh, including the 3D technology. And that doesn't uh, just stop with 3D printing, but the 3D scanners and mills and just anything related to it is, is very cool to me. Um, I also am an online content provider. I have a YouTube channel called Computer Science of Dentistry. Uh, feel free to check that out. And um, I put a lot of my, uh, my information and my uh, results on that channel for people to see. So as it turns out in dentistry and uh, with 3D printing, we actually, as dentists, if you're really into the 3D printing, we do a lot. Um, we actually do the full CAD CAM workflow. Uh, basically, we start um, with a scan. We do some reverse engineering to make a prosthetic part for somebody, and then we print it out and deliver it to them. Um, a big difference, I think, uh, with 3D printing and dentistry as compared to everywhere else, it seems like, is that we are strictly resin-based. Um, we don't do any FDM printing uh, for those types of things. So every dental printer that's out there, I believe for the most part, is all resin-based. Um, from there, you kind of need to know that there's two different types of resins that can be used with these printers. Um, one is labeled a standard resin. The next is a biocompatible resin. Biocompatible is broken down into different stages as well. Um, certain resins have certain biocompatibility, which just means that um, they can uh, be in contact with uh, your skin or your mouth or your tooth for X period of time. Um, so there's different classifications there. Um, the things that we end up printing in, in dentistry uh, with our 3D printers, mainly by far and away is anatomical models, um, the, the casts and the molds that we take of people's teeth. Uh, we can then scan those in and then print them out. Um, but I think it's important to also realize this biocompatible portion here. Um, we are actually using these 3D printed uh, resins, to, or we're using these resins to make 3D printed surgical guides. And that's important because if you can kind of see in the picture here, I mean, these resins, these parts that we're making, they're intimately close to tissue, blood, bone, 
um, those types of things. So I just want to make make it known that this is something that exists and um, that is used on a daily basis in dentistry. So it, it that's important because you start to think of um, if you're going to be 3D printing masks, masks or other PPE, um, what are the harms in doing so? You know, is there any harm in doing that? Um, allergic reactions and, and things like that. So uh, biocompatible is important there. And uh, we really take it to the limit with these surgical guides. We also do complete dentures that are 3D printed, TMJ splints, pretty much the whole gamut. Um, as far as uh, the, the masks that have been out there, um, about a few weeks ago, I started seeing a lot of iterations come out. Um, Copper 3D on their website put one out, uh, Medical University of South Carolina has some, have some different filters and some different designs. And then there's this Montana mask as well floating around. Um, the, the thing that I noticed right away is that it, all these, all these solutions are one size fits all. Um, you know, I mean, there is a way to sometimes thermoform these 3d prints to get them to fit better uh, against your face. People are adding also custom kind of gaskets and things like that to aid in that as well. Um, but doing what we do as dentists, I mean, that's, this is what we do all the time. We take unique anatomy and we make a one-off of that particular, um, of that particular print, whatever it is. So this is right up our alley as far as what we do regularly anyway. Um, so I thought, hey, I already have this program that I've developed that takes in scans of teeth and other things and creates objects based off of that or 3D printed parts based off of that. This should not be a, a big step to take a face and then do some of those same uh, CAD procedures on that to end up with a kind of a semi-automated solution to make 3D printable masks. So that's when I, um, I started making a program called Mesh Mask. It's free. Um, it uses Autodesk Mesh Mixer to uh, basically do all the functions and the algorithms and the driving there. Um, so really, my program is just kind of like a bunch of macros, and it does things based on you know, the input that you give it. Essentially, you can take a scan of someone's face. You can mark the outline where you want the border of the mask to be. And it will, uh, based on how much thickness you want on the mask and how much distance from the face you want, it will generate a, 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 a custom fit 3D printable mask um, based on those parameters. And then also, as the weeks went on, um, you started to kind of notice that people were making different filters, different attachments, different designs. And so I just thought instead of trying to add one every time someone came out with something new, uh, to make it more of like a modular system. So it has this like 22 millimeter CPAP port, which fits all the, a lot of the, the filter designs that are coming out right now, um, as well as any other future uh, potential iterations as well. So it kind of, I'm trying to make it as flexible as possible for anybody to do anything they want. It doesn't have to make a mask. It's just something that can help possibly innovate maybe something else as well. Um, but that's, that's what I got here as well. Um, it, it also makes a separate um, 3D printable gasket that goes around the outside. Uh, because like I said before, the, sometimes there can be a, there can be like allergic reactions and things like that that happen when you have these resin um, 
prints and they're directly in contact with your face. So you got to be you got to be somewhat careful about that. Um, and this part, the gasket part, could be printed in a biocompatible resin, while the other part could be printed maybe in a more standard resin. That was the idea there. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's that. Um, and I've kind of got into this a little bit, but I mean, I really, truly do think there are some important considerations uh, to, to really think about here when we're talking 3D printing. Um, I mean, it's, there, there, are, there, are a lot of, um, there are a lot of cases where if you use a standard resin and you don't follow the proper protocols of post-processing and printing and the guidelines of the manufacturer, uh, you can end up in a, a not fully cured part and then it can leak monomers and things like that, which can uh, cause irritation um, and some other things. So it's, it's important to really, really understand what we're working with when we're talking about resin printers here. Um, the other big part here is uh, if you're printing something that's, that's going to be a face mask, it's essentially restricting your entire respiration pathway to within that 3D printed part. So I think it's really important to kind of get some of the data on uh, off-gassing of the 3D printed parts. I think it's minimal um, if you follow the, the protocols correctly, but still, I don't know if there's enough data out there to really be 100% sure on that. So that's actually something that's really a big consideration for me and something I think should be, you know, looked into, you know, to a decent degree for sure. Um, we talked about the residual monomer leakage that happens if you're not following the, the proper protocols and curing things thoroughly. Um, some other things that people have talked about is with FDM prints, you know, are they actually watertight? Um, could the vi uh, virus particles get in through those layer lines, things like that. And then also, could these uh, three uh, printed parts, can they be sterilized? And um, will they degrade over time with sterilization? For me, um, I kind of just broke it down into uh, just a couple columns here. And this is just kind of high level, just basic recommendations um, that I've come up with based on everything I've seen so far. Um, but with FD imprints, the direct layer deposition, um, I would say stay away from ABS as a material uh, because it uh, it's actually does have some known off-gassing uh, properties and it's really not, not good. It's harmful for you. So I'd say stay away from the ABS if possible. Uh, TPU is a good choice. It's really good for thermoforming. Uh, PLA is very cheap and easy. It also can be thermoformed, biocompatible as well. It's made from, I think, um, some vegetable um, glycerin or something like that. Uh, PET-G um, is also a good one. It resists, uh, like I said, uh, degradation from uh, the traditional chemical sterilization agents. For resin, um, I would say, even though it may be possible to use standard resins in certain cases, if you're going to be confining your respiratory path to, to within a 3D printed part, I, I would just say I would avoid the standard resins altogether. You know, just stick with biocompatible. I mean, crazy times could call for crazy measures, but I think if it's possible, stay with uh, the biocompatible. Um, without a doubt, follow the post-process uh, protocols thoroughly to the T every time. Um, that's a thorough rinse, a thorough cure, uh, everything like that. Um, when you are printing with resin, uh, when you go through the cure cycle, there can be uh, shrinkage and warpage sometime. So that's a consideration uh, as far as removing the supports maybe before or after. Um, if you're trying to get a filter that needs to be perfectly snapped into one of those little boxes, 
if you take the supports off before you cure it, that's going to warp and then it won't be a perfect fit anymore. So those are things you need to uh, consider as well with resin, resin based printing. Um, and just to be extra careful, if I were for sure going to be using this, knowing that it was going to be kind of restricted to, like I said, someone's face or something like that, I would go the, the full mile and I would say submerge it under a, a glycerin bath and cure it in that submerged bath. I think that's going to get you the best full complete cure. That's what we do and that's what's recommended with our uh, 3D printed dentures that we do. So I think that's a, a smart thing to do if you were potentially going to be doing that. And it's not really, um, there's not enough research right now, but some people are suggesting that after everything is completely cured and you've gone through all the steps and you're ready, uh, if you pop it into a, a water bath and with uh, ultrasonic attached to it, that can help kind of get the residual monomers if there are any left uh, out of the 3D printed part. So that's, that's me and that's what I've been doing. And uh, it's, it's a little bit different in that I'm not necessarily doing the manufacturing of it, but I'm just trying to give people like you maybe, or, or anybody else, just a, a tool or something to help innovate, create that type of thing. Thank you. Karen. By the way, I just want to mention that we do have a Q&A box at the bottom uh, on this Zoom. So please input your question in the Q&A box rather than in the, in the chat box because we don't monitor those. And if you like a particular question, you can vote up in the Q&A box as well. Um, also, I just want to mention all the speakers' information will be on the website um, and we will also post all the relevant links. I know Kevin has a a very good a YouTube channel, and I actually enjoy watching it a little bit. Um, so we'll share that link as well. And then I think Jordan wants to have some time constraints. So I'll, Jordan, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and, and introduce you. Uh, so Jordan actually is our community manager in Boston as well. He's a, a super awesome 3D designer, really cross-discipline, I would say. Um, done quite a few healthcare projects but now is also working on COVID-19 designs and manufacturing. Jordan, you're muted. Yep, can you guys hear me now? Yeah. Awesome, so let me pull up uh, my presentation. I lost the window, but yeah, thanks for the intro um, and I'll share my screen. So there we go. You guys see my screen okay? Yes, cool. So yeah, a little bit about me. Um, like Jenny said, I'm pretty uh, cross-disciplinary. Um, my background, I graduated uh, from school with a degree in industrial design, but I also have a background in computer graphics and 3D modeling. And one of my biggest things that I do is I like to combine those worlds. Uh, and I'll give a small demonstration of that later. Um, my cat is named Norton. Um, and I got in involved through this, uh, through two, two channels. Um, one was through 3D Heels. Like Jenny said, I, I'm a community manager and my first event that I was going to hold in Boston, um, coincided exactly when essentially the, the city shut down here. So I had to shut down that event, but then through that, I spoke to somebody, um, his name's Brian. He runs a company, he's a major player at a company called Midwest Prototyping. And they were starting to pivot everything they did over to face shields. So through that connection, I basically called up my, my GP doctor, my personal doctor. I was like, hey, do you need any supplies? I know somebody who's producing them. And, you know, like the story went at first, it was like, ah, maybe. And then later it was like, okay, yeah, we'll take some. And then later it was, okay, yeah, here's the entire Alliance Healthcare Network, like 
put your name in, give people stuff. So through that, I fulfilled about 900 to 1,000 orders just connecting people directly. And then um, ever since then, I've been designing a lot of stuff on my own. So uh, this is one of the things I've been working on is this, uh, well, actually, uh, these are the four things I've been working on. Uh, I've been building an FDM-based uh, respirator, um, building a thermoform respirator. Uh, the one that you see here on the slide is the uh, five sizes I built for my FDM one um, using uh, NIOSH head forms that I obtained. So it goes extra large, large, etc. Um, so the design thinking behind this was that it needs to be easy to print. Essentially, like I want even an amateur with a low quality or uncalibrated FDM printer at home to be able to just put this in. Um, it needs to be modular in the sense that, you know, if you come out with a different kind of filter, if uh, you have different types of elastic, like uh, you can see in the image on the right, it was going through a fit test, which it passed. Um, but the, the, the elastic is actually two rubber bands and then electrical tape tied between them. And that's how I made the elastic strap because by the time I was making this, there's literally no elastic left anywhere. Um, the idea also is to make this essentially as equivalent to it. Theoretically, this is equivalent to an N95. Uh, once it passes a fit test for the user and you're using an N95 style filter, it should filter the same amount. So that's kind of the design goal. Uh, so the big thing on this in terms of design was no supports and it prints all in one piece. You know, there's like, you know, you have, rather than having like a filter cartridge and a separate attachment. So everything for this is designed at uh, less than a 45 degree overhang. So it just prints straight off the bed, it's good to go. Uh, the material of choice is TPU. I think you can use, I've seen some people print it with PETG and thermoform it. Uh, but the idea is that it's supposed to be as, you know, universal as possible. So I have these several designs, all of them are flexible. Um, the vitamins is like an old open source 3D printing term for manufactured components like screws and linear rods. And in that case, the vitamins for this would be the elastic and the, um, the, uh, uh, what's it called? The, the metal. So there's actually the, this band here up at the top. There's a paper, you cut a paper clip and you slide that in there and that's how you can get the nose squeeze to hold it to your face. Um, and then the other thing is of course the filters which are based on target makeup pads because I found research that said uh, double layered cotton is as effective as a surgical mask for stopping this sort of virus. Uh, and double and cotton makeup pads are two layers of cotton with a big like cotton ball wedged between them. So it's kind of perfect for that. Um, so the version one has passed fit test. Uh, now it has NIOSH, NIOSH sizes. The version test you can see on the right. Um, the whoops. The uh, new the latest versions haven't gone through fit testing yet. Again, I have to do that. It's still like it's on three point two now. Um, but the other thing is the design is completely open source. It's built using Onshape, it's in the cloud. You can go there and use the files yourself or you can just grab the STLs online already. Um, so they're available on my website or Thingiverse or what have you. The other major part of the project I'm working on is thermoforming a respirator. So um, the idea is same sort of filter, same sort of like modular approach based on you know whoever has like something, right? Um, excuse me, I'm gonna close something real quick. There we go. Um, so it's based on, you know, whatever you have at hand, the idea is it's supposed to be able to be made anywhere. Um, again, same sort of like compatible sizes. I actually had, uh, I brought it up. I'll show you guys really quickly what this looks like in three dimensions. Um, you can see I have a lot of tabs. Uh, but yeah, so 
that's this is basically the other half of the equation, which is the um, the mass production version. Whereas the three D printing one is more for like individuals or uh, distributed manufacturing, which I'll go into later. Um, the next thing that I did was uh, I produced this uh, surgical mass tension release band. Um, I tried printing the NIH one and I found that because of my build plate, I got delamination issues when I was trying to pull it off. And in addition, I found that the, uh, the layer lines for the, since the stress of the band is going in this way around the back of your head, the layer lines are oriented in that direction. So it's easier for them to delaminate. So this is designed to be printed vertically. So all the layer lines are essentially like my fingers. If if the thing doesn't cut my face out and then you can kind of bend it like uh, this rather than bending them apart like that. So on this one, I think I did 50 plus on a print bed. They're super fast to print. They're super easy. Um, I have a 0.6 nozzle, which is a little bigger than standard, but I printed 50 of them in eight hours. So it's really fast to print. Um, and this is still going through a little bit of testing. I gave it to my upstairs neighbor who's a nurse and she likes it, but I need to make sure that it, it prints properly uh, consistently. Um, the last thing that I wanted to show, and then I'll show a little bit about how I do my design work and then I'll pass it off, is the distribu distribution network. So I'm working on this project that essentially says, you know, if you have a thousand people with one 3D printer each and each of them prints two masks a day, that's 10,000 masks in a week. And combining this with the idea that, hey, I'm producing an FDM style print, which is meant to be, you know, produced in that like very piecemeal method with a thermoform style print, which is meant to be produced in a few locations at mass production volumes. You're kind of taking, you're, you essentially don't wanna just settle on, okay, we're gonna have a, one type of material, one type of mass, that's all we're gonna make. You're gonna, to accomplish this and fulfill the backlog for everything we have, we need to have like, okay, we're gonna have an FDM design, we're gonna have an SLA design, an SLS design, a thermoform design, an injection molded one, so that you essentially can activate as much manufacturing as possible because different facilities will have different capabilities. So the idea behind this website is a hospital will put in an order for a thousand units and then individually you'd split that out into maybe you know, 100, 500, 700 different orders where you have small time people filling it but you also have large manufacturers filling it. Um, and then the designs that they're going to be filling are going to be standardized within the platform. So the last thing I wanted to show is the designs themselves. So this is the 3D, uh, this is on Onshape. It's a free online CAD browser. Um, and then this is the thermoform design, which I'm thinking I'm going to call the turtle because it looks like a turtle. Um, the other way, so the way I did these uh, masks is kind of cool where I used a game art tool. This is called Moto. It's how I use it for like work and computer visualization, but it has a retopology system where basically you have a mesh underneath the active mesh. So in this case, this is a NIOSH head form and this is the mask and I can just pull and drag and it automatically stitches the mold to it or I can hit divide a bunch and it automatically sticks it to the mesh behind it. So that's how I built this. So I took this, which is subdivision, I exported it to NURB, sent it to Onshape, and then did the rest of the construction. So that's, uh, that's me. And now how do I stop sharing my screen? Uh, there we go, stop share, thank you. Thank you, Jordan. I'm always fascinated with all those softwares that you use with your design process. Um, and uh, also thanks for sharing your some feedback related to the NIH 3D print exchange website designs. Uh, we will talk more about that with our panelists today, but I'd like to move on to uh, Stephanie. Would you like to start your presentation?
Yeah, well, um, surprisingly, even though I am a, a full professor at the University of Victoria, I didn't actually make slides for this. Um, <laughs> but um, I think uh, actually a lot of the previous presenters have um, presented a lot of the, the similar things. Um, so I guess a little bit of background. I am a full professor and Canada Research Chair of Biomedical Engineering on, um, at the University of Victoria. So we're on Vancouver Island um, in Canada. So uh, there's a little bit of a difference in supply chain issues, I think, between the countries. Um, a little bit of a difference with the health authorities because in British Columbia, we have um, multiple health authorities. So um, I'll talk a little about that in a second. And uh, I direct the um, biomedical engineering undergraduate program. And in my uh, past life, before everything went crazy, my lab uh, worked on 3D printing neural tissues, which we may come back to for some of the, the COVID stuff. But um, what sort of ended up happening was uh, obviously there's pandemic, and uh, here in, uh, on island, a doctor, I believe, had uh, the infection and they found out. And so they went from just needing um, normal face masks overnight to then everyone needing face shields. And then I think as everybody in this group understands, um, you don't instantly get a ton of PPE overnight. And so that's why people were turning to 3D printing. Um, and my role as a licensed engineer and sort of as a person who's visible in the community, I had a lot of um, outreach on, on both sides from people uh, in the manufacturing industry. And we also do have um, a very strong uh, sort of network of 3D printers. I think they're called, um, so we have sort of two initiatives, but there's one that's actually more uh, open source, the um, BC COVID-19 3D printed group, which has been more uh, people in the community donating and, and making PPE for some of the things that fall through the gaps here in, in Canada. Um, uh, nursing homes, doctors who aren't necessarily affiliated with health authorities, um, mental health, uh, people working with homeless people. So there's sort of a lot, lot going on. And so a lot of the work I've been doing is helping to network as well as oversee quality control. So you get a lot of uh, people working in the community who come up with designs, who want to help and sort of sorting through that. Um, our major initiative that's been uh, out of the University of uh, Victoria has been mainly focused on using, I think, the Prusa uh, 3 design, which has been approved by a number of health authorities. And so um, through some optimization, um, a group of, of uh, both local students, local alumni, um, and people in the community have optimized it so we can print a number of the um, uh, headband portions of the face shields quite rapidly. For the actual plastic PETG face shields, we um, uh, we're very lucky, one of our partners from CNC up in Sydney, a uh, town nearby, uh, he was able to source a lot of that um, when we were first looking at this. And I think, I think other people have alluded to this, is material sourcing has been quite uh, difficult. And I think if you're looking for uh, straight plastic PETG right now, you, can't, you aren't going to get any for at least like 15 weeks. Um, so that's one thing I've learned a lot about in this process is supply chain. Um, so yeah, just here on island, it's been a big community effort. Uh, before um, all of this happened, I did have a good relationship with our health authority. And so I was able to take our designs and get them approved uh, quite rapidly. Um, uh, just a little bit on the legal liability. Our project's a bit different because we have opened it up. We do have people in the community printing and they do, we do run it all through UVic. And so uh, my, um, my uh, chief engineer on the project, Lila Abelseth, she inspects all the donated parts to make sure they're of sufficient quality. We package and sterilize um, parts here at the university and uh, what was my research lab. 
um, now using the UV sterilization to make medical devices. And then we've been delivering 100 to 200 a day to the health authority the past few weeks. Um, we were planning to make 4,000, but um, more recently the Vancouver Island Health Authorities indicate they're gonna need larger quantities. A lot of groups in the community reached out to get um, face shields um, from some of these groups that sort of fall through the cracks. And I know that our open source group, um, they've been making things that aren't to um, necessarily Health Canada standards, but using some of the things that I think uh, Nicholas was showing where you're using things like overhead transparencies with the 3D printed parts just to get cheaper solutions, just to get any sort of degree of protection. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think actually one of the cities nearby Langford has said that people who are going to work need to be wearing face shields. So it's a, uh, yeah, uh, a, a crazy time and be interesting how the, the demand grows and, and people you not necessarily working with the health authority, you're like, well, it makes sense that these people should be protected. Um, yeah, and yeah, for us with the legality, um, because we have, we had it approved by the health authority, um, we did go through a couple of rounds with legal just because they weren't sure about, there are um, relaxed standards for manufacturing um, necessary equipment in emergencies. And so we had consulted with the Health Canada standards. And so we do have some disclaimers on our packaging. We did also sign um, an official contract, which um, in an interesting thing, the way the university I work at wanted, um, Island Health did offer to pay us for our, our face shields, but the university didn't want to actually um, take their money. So we're doing it as a donation. So uh, we've gotten some charity money from Coast Capital Savings um, and some other groups have offered to, to help as well. So um, other things just when you're working sort of in a bit of a larger scale, which I don't know if other people have had to work with, but maybe Nicholas has is um, when you're packaging and, and doing the printing when you have uh, a large print farm. So we actually took a lot of the 3D printing capacity at UVic and put it all in an engineering lab. So it was easy to monitor, but um, maintaining social distancing, um, and things along those lines because you can't necessarily have the numbers of people working like you would in in, in different times. So um, I think I'm more at an organizational level and doing a lot of the like looking at designs once they've been made and, and deciding whether or not to pass them along to the health authority. Um, and so I think those are just some of, some of the lessons. I think it's been actually really great to see how the community comes out and um, I think um, I think Jordan was talking about this. It's really been uh, a lot of, of local sourcing, what your local contacts have. A lot of companies that make, um, in other industries, like we've been working with Viking Air, which normally makes airplanes. A lot of local machine shops have really been good about talking with us about what they can do and how they can contribute um, in the medical device field. So I think those are just some of my uh, lessons from, um, what do I say? I was like a month ago, we weren't doing this and now we're making, you know, <laughs> Uh, large quantities of PP. Yeah, it is amazing how our community is very agile, um, that we switch roles so quickly. Um, but I think, Stephanie, you brought up a lot of really interesting questions. Um, uh, but I'm going to start with one is the vetting process of a design. Uh, we have literally hundreds out there. Um, and I like everybody's input on this after Stephanie you can start first is exactly how do you vet some of the designs? Do you have a committee that formed that's multidisciplinary? Like how do you, what is the process? Yeah, well, well here on Island, it's, um, as I said, it's uh, very uh, a, a local. And so with our designs, yeah, I was looking at 
can we sterilize, like how well can we sterilize these different pieces? Like how strong are the materials? Uh, we had a, um, the design we were using had been approved by Health Canada, so then just making sure it meets those standards. And then um, it'll sound very cute and islandish, but knowing the head of biomedical engineering, you know, um, I was like, here's what we're making. And, and we talked like about the difference between PLA versus uh, PEG, PEPG um, and what they would prefer. And then we brought over prototypes and then because the demand was, the, the need was there, um, then, you know, they looked at it and it was very quickly to be approved. And I know for other local manufacturers, just differences in supply chain, that's sort of been what they've been. But usually um, for a lot of the stuff, people have come to me and then I'll refer them on to my island health contacts. So it is very important to have that connection between these two different or several different organizations to be able to have that open conversation. Um, yeah. I mean, not, not every designers that we know, I would say majority of the designers that we know don't have that benefit of being able to directly converse. Yeah, and I mean, and also, um, as I mentioned, we do have this other open source 3D printing group, which um, they can have more flexibility and they can donate to things like your nursing homes and things like that because they don't have to meet the same standards. Um, but for some of my partners, um, like the machine shops, a lot of them already have their ISO for making uh, medical devices. And so it's sort of getting, um, we sort of actually even, and I, I mean, I hate saying this, but you know, we have tiers of, you know, this is what we want for our doctors, you know, and then for some of the other groups, we can direct them to um, the open source project, which uses lower quality materials that aren't necessarily approved designs for medical grade. Thank you. Nick, would you like to go next to answer the same question? How, how do you vet it? Yeah, that's a really good question. So with over 2000 volunteers, um, the, this is this effort is there's a lot of people working on the organization side of this. And so um, it started at first with me looking over everything, <laughs> which quickly um, stopped working. Um, we ended up publishing, we got, got a lot of people involved to uh, build out a website and have a Google Doc. So um, at first we were sending that out and saying, you know, if you're going to be making stuff, please follow, you know, here's the design that we know that works. Here's the feedback that we're getting. Um, you know, here's the temperature to set your build plate for this material. Um, or here's some errors that we're having. And then it became a requirement. So anybody that would sign up would have to go through, do a little questionnaire oh, and that out and then we now we have a warehouse which is an um, auto body shop that got converted over to a distribution center it's really difficult because we've got yeah. so many people coming through but you have to social distance and so we've got one or two people there that we have been showering with pizza and beer <laughs> to look over everything that comes in and divide it up into um, the good the bad and the ugly um, and again, just like what Stephanie was saying, we have rural hospitals. Their needs are very different than the children's hospital. We've got homeless shelters and police force. All of their requirements are very different. Even within one hospital, the difference between um, an anesthesiologist and a radiologist is very different. And so it's been difficult to make sure that everything works, but um, we, we have different piles. Uh, unfortunately, the police force usually gets um, um, a lot of the stuff that, that breaks and we, we send the best stuff to the hospitals. Um, but um, the vetting process is incredibly, uh, is incredibly critical. 
more so now than ever because all of these things are starting to be used. And I feel this huge responsibility um, that if somebody's going to be using this and going into a COVID ward and somebody coughs in their face, that they're going to be um, protected. So we do take it very seriously, um, although it's not easy to set that up in, in just a month. We also, I also want to say we also rely on the hospital a lot too. So again, this is, this is feedback. The hospital has an amazing um, sterile processing unit and experts there. And so we started off, I just want to say we started off by taking this all on ourselves. And we did a lot of things. We wasted a lot of time. Um, but getting the feedback with, with some of the better sterile processing departments, we were able to really help tailor our, our designs to something that um, met their standards. Can I ask Nick a question? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, I want to know because this is something that came up with our designs because initially um, we weren't, well, with the legal liability, we were saying, you know, they were single use. And then um, the hospital came back and said, no, yours are, can be reused. So I was curious what you were using to sterilize at your hospital because um, on our island, we, they actually have to send it over to Vancouver to get ethylene oxide sterilized. So I was just curious, like, what you guys, what you've experienced and how it affects the reusability of PPE because that's now sort of where we're at. <laughs> yeah, it's a moving target because um, we started off by using things like Oxivir, um, hand sanitizer, soap and water, you know, every possible thing that we could use. And we sent it off to some testing facilities, not the full on FDA or NIOSH testing facilities, because that takes way too long. But, um, you know, simple, um, simple materials that we could have. Eventually, everything has started to run out and we're using just bleach and water, and um, which has its own problem because it leaves a film on, on everything. Um, UV sterilization is really good, but a lot of people don't trust it. So we've done a number of tests in the hospitals to say that UV sterilization works. People are really afraid of it though. Um, and, that, and that's been the biggest takeaway be, be behind all of this, is that even though our testing reports are showing things that are really good, the people that are actually wearing this and getting coughed on and, and, and you know, putting, putting their life at risk are terrified. And so being able to dip things and give them all the options to clean this. And, and again, some of it is falling back on the individual user. So we have some standards at the hospital, but these at our hospitals, we, they give one per person and it's theirs for the duration. So they're taking a lot on a lot of um, their own responsibility, which ultimately at the end of the day poses some risks because of creativity. So they have some guy, you know, there's some arguments that we have with the hospital. They don't love our stuff because it opens up the opportunity for creativity. Um, but at the same time, they're, they're starting to put in some standards of what can and can't be done. Does that help? Thanks, Nick. Sure. Jordan. You're probably the first designer I ever know working on this. Um, you have an interesting journey yourself. How did you decide what design to use for your current uh, mask? And you know, did you go through a lot of other people's work first? Uh, yeah, I mean, I took a look at a couple. So when I started, this was like right at the beginning of the outbreak, and the biggest design was, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was basically like a cup shape that was made out of hard plastic. And then I had like a, like a grid filter that kind of fit into place. Um, and I looked at that and it, oh, actually, no, the biggest design was the, the, the thermoformed, um, 
copper 3D mask. And I looked at that and I saw like a lot of issues with it right off the bat. So I was like, I could do better than this. Um, so then I started kind of thinking about how I would do it from a 3D printing perspective. Uh, I chose the TPU early on. And at first I tried to do just one side and then I got immediate feedback that that was too hard to breathe through. So then I did two sides. The original mask was also a lot shorter to optimize print time, but then it was more less comfortable. So I went from there. In terms of my journey for, so I like the, the question about certification because I feel like um, there's a lot of opportunity for designers to contribute, but uh, there's not a lot of paths for it. So for instance, the way I got mine fit tested was I was on, I, I've been kind of keeping track of this whole thing forever. So I was like, okay, so I was on the Mass General Hospital webinar for their COVID response team that they were putting together. And I was reading the chat and I saw someone from there say, hey, uh, from not necessarily from MGH. He doesn't want me to say what facility he's from because they would get inundated. But uh, at a facility was saying um, the uh, like, hey, we could do fit testing. So I was like, okay, I called this person up and then I went, ran, drove down there and I got a fit tested. But it's all kind of like all over the place. It would be uh, like, like I proposed in the MGH group, it would be great if you could have like a channel where essentially you have like a testing facility that has, okay, filters, and you have masks and rather than keeping them combined you separate the two of them and you run them through i think that answered the question in a little bit more um i don't want to take up too much time did that did that answer the question <laughs> i answer some of the questions and i think we have a lot of questions in general so i, I mean this is more of a discussion I, I think we're getting some great questions from the participants i'd like to go into some yes I have a question that's been voted up from stephanie Hendrickson, um, to the panel, can you go into more detail on the liability front? What responsibility do hospitals or individual healthcare professionals assume when using non-standard PPE? Is there someone that likes to take a stab at that question? I, I can start with the first step because I actually had a conversation because me and Jordan had a conversation about it when it just started. And unfortunately, um, there isn't a whole lot of, you know, clarification about it. There is a general liability law that still covers whatever you produce. So is there a risk to get sued for, you know, after this whole crisis is over because of some defective product? The possibility is there. It's not zero. Um, however, if you have gone through various process to vet your design, vet your final manufacturer product, you've tried your best, you've demonstrated a process, or perhaps if you obtained your design from a more official website, the risk may be decreased. Um, that's the answer I got from a lawyer, actually. So uh, I've definitely looked into it. It's not reassuring, um, but on the other hand, I would say we have a lot of creativity in healthcare 3D printing in general. It doesn't stop people from creating new stuff out. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the, the, the risk of liability should not prevent people from creating awesome stuff to help people and save lives. So there was one addition to that. Sorry, uh, was someone else going to speak? Oh, no, you can go. I was just going to say there, there was one way around that that, we, that I explored um, where uh, if you could get a hospital or nursing home or whatever to actually buy a printer and put it in their building and print locally, 
then they assume the risk. And I actually explored that with a couple nursing homes in the area. But the answer I got at the time was essentially like, we are t way too busy to try and even consider that. But it's, that's an option to get around the liability issue. Um, yeah, and on that note, um, what we've done is we actually package our face shields unassembled, and then the person using them assembles them. And so that, um, and so when we were talking with Island Health, that was sort of like the way of getting around um, the manufacturing issue, which might be what people are concerned about. And um, as I mentioned, I did a couple rounds with lawyers on our, um, well, with lawyers both at UVic and Island Health um, about what your, your legal liability is. Um, but I guess just here in, uh, I, I mean, the laws may be different in Canada, but also um, just like the people who were providing them to, you know, it's between that or, or, or nothing. So um, they've been very grateful. And so I kind of, I guess my personal opinion is um, <laughs> that depending on what your hospital is providing and things like that, that would be who I think. Uh, but then I've also talked to both our hospitals and our, our university lawyers about what we're, we're providing. So. Thank you. Have you any, um, yeah, any other input? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I, I think that it's important in a general sense that we let people know that our 3D printed solutions are a stopgap measure. They're being used in cases where we don't have access to fitted N95s. So what's better, a fitted, you know, um, wearing a bandana or a 3D printed respirator that we're doing our best uh, and with the proper disclaimers. Um, I know Kevin, that this has been a concern for Kevin you know, is uh, creating his software. Uh, so when you go to Kevin's website, you download his software, it's disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. Do you want to say anything more, Kevin, or did I say it for you? No, I mean, you nailed it. I've, I've just been really, really concerned about that um, to the point where I hate to even say it, but we might even just take the software down. Um, I don't know. You know, you get to a point and you get worried. And I think the big thing for me is I trust people that know what they're doing and professionals and experts. And honestly, that's what this is intended for. That's what the software is intended for, for those people. Uh, unfortunately though, it gets into the hands of just an average user, doesn't really know the ins and outs of the full process. And that can be, um, I think that's where people get into to trouble maybe. Yeah. All right, I just wanna jump in and say, I have to hop off, but this is awesome. I'm sorry, I have to go. I'd love to reach out to you guys later though. Thank you for being part of this, Jordan. Thank you. Thank you, Jordan. Anybody on the chat, feel free to reach out. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Well, since everybody is doing disclaimer, I also want to have a disclaimer is that we're not advocating any particular healthcare product, design, software, uh, and we're not giving any healthcare advice right now officially. So just want to add that. Um, but we do have a list of questions that from the audience. Nabil, would you like to uh, tackle some of this? Sure. Let's take a question from Rin Johansson. I think this has been a question on lots of people's mind. It's directed to, to you, Stephanie, but I think uh, others can, um, can give it a, um, can, can take it as well. Are you using UV light to sterilize FDA printed face shield headbands? How did you develop your sterilization protocols? Were your protocols developed in collaboration with the Van Island Health Authority? Yeah, so um, I would need to check with Lila, who's running things, to, fi to figure out the specific details. But I think we're doing 20 to 30 minute exposures. Um, we originally developed these for uh, in the, my uh, old research lab as ways to sterilize um, 
other in, in implements we used when we did research. Um, we did talk to uh, the Island Health Authority about ways of sterilization. And in fact, that's one thing we've been talking about making for them is actually more UV sterilization boxes. And so we've done a lot of research into, you know, um, you know, wavelength, exposure time and things along that line. Um, and I've heard, uh, although I haven't actually looked, um, some of my students um, who've been working on this project and are actually hiring a bunch of engineering students to help with all the COVID-19 stuff this summer, uh, I've, I've heard anecdotally that all the UV lights are sold out on Amazon because everyone's looking into UV sterilization. Um, so I think at least um, up here, that's sort of been what's been recommended just because things like uh, ethylene oxide or, you know, those facilities are so expensive. And so you aren't going to get any of those running anytime soon. Thank you, Stephanie. Let's see here. We have a question, uh, another sterilization question uh, from Richard uh, Dorer. Uh, what sterilization methods do you recommend for FDM printing regarding face shield headwear as ASA, ABS? What do you recommend? I mean, like we've only been, um, most of our uh, headbands coming in have been PLA and PETG. We did, um, oh, I, we, I forgot, we did actually acquire um, a number of uh, ovens, but they were shrinking the PLA headbands and, and causing poor fit. Um, but those are, that's like pretty much been my experiences. I don't know what um, Nick and Kevin's experiences have been. Yeah, for, for us, um, we were, we, we've seen a whole variety of different materials. Um, some really great, like uh, you didn't mention nylon at all, but there's some really great nylon printers that are out there. Um, they've been producing very strong and lightweight headbands, but they're impossible to clean. <laughs> so it's like the best material for the job, but no one will accept them because they've got so many little porous holes in them that, that nobody wants to take the risk. No, no hospital will accept them. Unfortunately, um, we went through the whole testing of everything that was available at the hospital. Most everything holds up, but again, with the FDM, you have got to look at the individual layers. You know, they're stacked up like coins, and so there's a lot of gaps. We found that um, uh, dipping works really well. You know, having a bucket and dipping everything in, and they're incredibly durable. We've also found that um, heating them up for about an hour to 50 degrees Celsius will work without them melting. But the melting point, or at least the point where they start to become flexible is 55 degrees Celsius. Mm. So with some of the FDM um, face masks, um, where they weren't fitting certain people, we were putting them in hot 60 degrees Celsius water and then molding them slightly to adjust to your face. So there's a very fine line um, of, of how long, temperature and time to be able to clean them. We haven't gone that route because it's just right at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, liquid dipping <laughs> is where we're at. I, I read an article recently talking about vaporized hy uh, hydroxyl peroxide. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't read the article, unfortunately. I just saw the title and I shared it. Um, but I, I'm going to read it. But any thoughts on that? Because actually the, this was mentioned uh, in our last webinar uh, by one of the um, the person who was printing the, the PPE stuff. Mm -hmm. 
I, I think a great website resource is the n95decon.org. Um, uh, they've been putting just a lot of work on this topic of sterilization of N95. Yes. Right. applies to so From much. From UCSF, exactly. So um, for, for those, I mean, a whole research team dedicated toward that issue, I, I definitely recommend following their work. I will share that link after this as well. Thank you, Nabil, for bringing that up. Wonderful. Uh, let, let, let's hop to another question from the from our participants. This one's directed to you, Kevin. Um, Resin-based mask, can you estimate the difference in cost compared to FDM? Ooh, uh, good question. Um, if you're kind of taking my recommendations, which is using the biocompatible resins, you're going to be up there. You're going to be up there and it's going to be expensive. Um, I think one liter of the surgical guide resin that we use in dentistry is probably about $400 or so. Um, I'm guessing maybe you can get like four or five masks in total uh, out of that, maybe with all the supports and everything like that, kind of depending on how you were to, to print it. But um, yeah, it gets expensive. But at the same time, um, I have a lot of that, you know, I mean, I got, I got a lot of it laying around. I got some other biocompatible resins that I'm not going to use uh, before its expiration date laying around. So, um, so for me, it's a, it's a good option. Um, I, just personally to, you know, and we, we did test prints of the respirator masks ourselves. And by the time you print the mask in a surgical guide or, or would we would do an orthodontic type resin, the indirect bonding tray resin, those are easily 300 to $400 a liter. Um, and, uh, by the time we're done producing those masks, you know, we're lucky if we walk away at $50 a mask on resin, uh, that was my cost. Uh, so if it's a last resort stopgap measure and there's nothing else available, well, then that's what we'll do. But we need to, uh, we need to explore uh, more economic uh, options that conserve time and resource. Um, thank you, you know, for the question. I will say that um, I've been kind of trying to pay attention to some of the other um, leaders in the field doing these different things. And uh, one of them in dentistry is Dr. Wally uh, Rene. And um, He's, he's put a lot of good information out um, in regards to this, but especially the resin 3D printing component of it. Um, but he, he's put a lot of good information about the different filter attachments and, um, and, and how they relate to the N95s and everything like that. So, um, but what I was going to say is that he, or it doesn't, it doesn't really seem like people are, are too concerned about um, using standard resins um, for the, maybe the second half of that mask or the, the part that's not actually touching your face. It really seems like people aren't really that concerned about the off-gassing and things. I still am personally, but um, but it seems like um, it's a it's it's something that people are using and, and they're getting it vetted and it seems to be working okay. So um, just from a really careful point of view, I'm just kind of suggesting the biocompatibility, but it really does seem like uh, standard resins are also working. And if that is the case, then the price goes down incredible, like incredible. You can get. Uh, you can get two liters of cheap resin for, you know, 50 bucks. Well, perhaps this is where design can play a role. Like, you know, um, I think it was your presentation, Kevin, that you have uh, this gask or, or something that's biocompatible, but then there are part that's not super biocompatible. Maybe there are some creative ways of creating this. Um, and since we, we talked a lot about PPEs, but we also, you know, heard other things that's related to COVID, like the ventilator splitters, 
um, possibly other, other components. Like, have you guys heard of any other designs around the same crisis they think could be shared with us or interesting or why you didn't go into it? Um, we don't make them, but a lot of people have been making the ear savers. Oh, no, you, one of you, Nicholas, I think, or was it Kevin? Somebody printed a ton of the ear savers um, for, the, um, face, for the face masks to protect the ears for people wearing the masks. Um, I mean, I think there have been some other 3D printing efforts for some of the ventilator parts, but here in Canada, it's been mainly organized. Uh, the ventilator stuff is being run um, actually by a local company, Starfish, to do all the sourcing and manufacturing this to make sure they meet standards. Um, I think uh, one of the, the coolest things out there right now is the ability where people are trying to print swabs, 3D print swabs for yes, COVID testing. And absolutely. I think that's amazing. Um, in, in fact, your, your, your colleague that'll be on the 3D Heels 2020 panel, her company is taking the stab origin. It just has their, have their 3D printed swabs through the FDA right now. So yeah. you'll, be, you'll, be, you'll be virtually sitting next to her. <laughs> yes, we, yeah, we go gotten, uh, uh, had a really nice conversation with uh, Origin last week and, and are working to get um, a whole bunch of their swabs. Their material is really... Um, exciting. The, some of the things, the other designs that I'm starting to see right now um, are things where people are, are looking at what they currently do and asking, why weren't we better protected before? Um, so one of the projects that just came up, I mean, the intubation shield um, I showed, those exist. Nobody ever uses them because they were just a big box. So this is an opportunity for a long-term um, issue. But there's also... Um, you know, um, for kids that are getting their tonsils removed or adenoid surgery, um, when a surgeon goes in, they've got a fiber optic light that goes in their forehead and they typically don't wear a shield. They, maybe they wear glasses and a surgical mask, but now they've asked us to start to put a shield onto that, thinking this isn't just a short-term thing. This is gonna be here for a while. So I'm really interested in some of the, in the, in the trend. I think right now we're at that transition point. Of, think, of, of really evaluating our current process and going, well, what if this is going to be here for a long time? Um, I really like that. I mean, I think this is a time where, you know, the creative people in our field can start thinking about solutions for pre-existing problems and not totally related to COVID-19. Uh, I'm a radiologist. I don't intubate people anymore, but I have intubated people. I mean, imagine me intubating a 300-pound person it's not easy, and this is bad for the patient and a doctor both because, you know, if you fail intubation, that's a life we're talking about. And, and you know, all these, these uh, scopes and the tools that we have aren't always most user-friendly, um, you know, and we fail sometimes. So I, I really like to use this opportunity to really call to action for all the creative minds in our field using 3D printing to design these new solutions that really open up a field for us. I just want to add no, that. There's one other thing. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead, Kevin. Go ahead. Um, actually, you brought it to my attention, Nabil. Uh, it's uh, in dentistry, as it turns out, which is so wonderful. Um, we are one of the highest risk uh, professions for contracting COVID due to the aerosols that are produced with our drill and everything like that. Um, I think a very novel very cool thing that's that's coming out um, with this in mind 
is that people are creating devices that will uh, basically mitigate the aerosols that are in the air. So we have these uh, high vacuum ports right next to our patients, except we generally use them just to, you know, um, suck saliva, things like that. But you can adapt them to add kind of like these funnels to where a lot of the aerosols will now be pulled in that way. So that's novel, that's unique. We've never done that before. And I think that's really cool. Things like that are very, very cool. Yeah. Well, in medicine, that sounds like a ne negative pressure room. You know, we used to isolate a patient who has uh, a aerosol contagious disease like TB. We put them in a negative pressure room. I, I think that really just, you know, glad that we had that conversation. Yeah. And, and I think nothing facilitates design better than need and emergency need. So I think we're all experiencing you know, just, um, you know, this all hands on deck, wartime economy, no, we don't have parts here, pivot from one direction to the next, um, and uh, just concern emotions in the air. Um, I, you know, it's, it's amazing. I mean, just imagine this webinar right now, I've, I've been counting, we've had, we have people logged on from 16 countries. And uh, because the, the solutions are real, the, the, the need is real. And so um, I just, you know, thank you all for sharing your input here. Um, let's, let, let's, let's just jump to another question from the audience at this time. This is from uh, you, um, I'm gonna, Yudhistira Nock, um, for all speakers. Um, thank you. Um, my, name's get, my name gets butchered all the time. You know, it's, 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 it's tenderized by now. Um, for all speakers, uh, any experience to design or reverse engineering a valve or parts of a ventilator? I guess for, for I guess for uh, are any of our speakers working on that at this time? I know I know Lamborghini is. Um, well, um, I'm familiar with what's going on on island, um, and in Canada, I guess like Miguel hosted a competition for people to make ventilators. But talking to our government. Um, and as I mentioned, a, a local company got one of the, the contracts. Um, what I was told with regards to like getting local people to work on ventilators um, was Starfish was organizing and I've been mainly linking them up with our local machine shops that are ISO for um, making medical devices because in, in Canada at least it came down from, from the government what design they wanted and also there's now a big emphasis um, in Canada and probably a lot of countries on building Canada using Canadian resources. Um, and so that's sort of like with the ventilators, what, what their approach has been. And, and here in British Columbia, we have been very lucky that we haven't actually hit uh, one of the points where they are a limiting step. Yeah, we have looked into ventilator splitters um, from a 3D printing and design standpoint. It's pretty simple. Um, and especially when you start to get into, you can make it a little bit more complex when you add in um, uh, Venturi valves and you really control the flow. And in our early testing, we found that you could split one ventilator, I think, up to six times and still work, and maybe up to nine for, for infants. Um, however, it scares me to death. Um, we, uh, you know, if what, there's so much testing that goes in. It is very simple, but the risk of these failing, it, it could be catastrophic. And... Um, there's a lot of liability involved in that. You know, we've, we've talked about relaxed standards of care and how difficult it may be if a mask doesn't work and somebody contracts COVID 
it's almost impossible to be able to say it came from these masks. With a ventilator splitter, it's very direct um, if that breaks. So it's there, um, but I don't know anybody in the United States who is using 3D printed ventilator parts. Now we've looked into um, equine veterinary parts um, mm -hmm. and some off the shelf pieces to be able to make this. Um, they work, they're there, they're not approved. I hope it doesn't get to that point. Yeah, actually this subject um, was brought up in our last webinar and quite a few um, experts talked about it. Um, I think the American Society of Anesthesiologists do not recommend these ventilator splitters. Um, I mean, I'm not expert in this, but if you imagine, let's say if you have like earthquake and a lot of people need ventilators, these people have normal lungs. So the compliance, all you need is use a flow, you know, to pump these lungs. But we're talking about a disease that causes pneumonia, the compliance of the lungs significantly change. Um, so yeah, I'm actually kind of curious if Italy, you know, who is really using these, if they have some kind of outcome studies and if they have like better designs to manage the ventilators. Well, uh, we're near the end of this webinar. Um, the last night when I, me and Nabil were talking about this designing design for uh, COVID-19, we had a great time because there's just so many fun designs out there and we were just marveled at the creativities of people and some are just ridiculous. Uh, others are really creative. Like for one, for example, there's this uh, scuba diving mask uh, that's converted into, uh, I don't know, is it, is it now official mask. Um, I think actually one of the companies is actually going through testing uh, for these. So I wonder if you guys have any, you know, encounters with these fun designs kind of out there, but like worth of mentioning. Yeah, we um uh, we have a um, a local uh, group um, made one of these scuba designs with the think equivalent of HEPA filters, which we've got currently being looked at by our island health. Um, so we've we've seen some some interesting things that have come through. So we should be ordering some scuba diving masks before uh, it pans out in Amazon. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I have a website of like the most creative PPE from like you know non-medical, um, uh, you know, that have been produced by, by health professionals or those with that experience. And it's just so much fun to see people walk around grocery stores and, you know, in, in suits of armor and, um, you know, with, uh, it's, 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 it's really fun to see, you know, just people use their creativity at this time. I saw somebody uh, the other day with a, a cabbage leaf. <laughs> they had taken and cut the eye holes out of and put that over their head. And I actually thought, hey, that could work. Uh, I really like the, the disposable nature of it. I really hope at the end of this that there's some big show that puts on display all of the creativity and inventions that were created during this time. That's the most hopeful, exciting, hilarious, um, serious, you know, it, it's got, there's so much there, but uh, hopeful, I think is the best word. Yes, exactly. Um, okay, well, let's just double check on the questions. You know, unfortunately, we may not have time to answer all the questions. Um, and we will go through some of these questions if they have not been addressed by the webinar today. 
Um, on the other hand, we will save the recording uh, and it will be on the website, 3dhills.com. Um, so we'll, we'll also do, we'll convert this into our podcast, which is a new podcast uh, for 3D Hills as well. So it will be widely distributed. Um, and the goal of this is not to give anyone absolute directions or instructions. The goal is to just provide people a guidance um, so they can find their own path. Um, so any, any final word from our panelists today? Yeah, I'll get started. Um, all, of our, all of our work, our resources, um, testing, current designs, um, are all up on our website. I put in the chat here, it's makeforcovid.co. Um, the idea is that, you know, all of our organizational documents, um, all of the data tracking, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of data that's coming out of this, and that's really going to be exciting to, uh, to explore and dig into. All of our updated designs, modifications for different teams, everything is there, so please feel free if you have questions to go to the website and uh, check it out. Stephanie? Um, yeah, no, I think up here it's been a real community effort and hopefully, as you said, this isn't specifically what you should make or what you should do, but hopefully you've shown some pathways forward um, for everybody going from people who just have a 3D printer in their house to academics to Island Health. Um, and I think it really, well, I think in a lot of places it's really been community efforts and uh, I hope everybody uh, stays safe. And if people want to get in touch with you, Stephanie, your organization, like what should they do? Like a certain website or? Um, I can send you some of the, the stuff on the open, but people can just email me. Um, okay. That's my, my last name, willerth at uvic.ca. Um, and yeah, I've gotten inquiries from actually all over the world just asking about 3D printing things. So um, hopefully it won't blow up my inbox too much because we are like finishing off the semester, but what can you do? <laughs> Thank you. And Kevin, any final word? Uh, yeah, you know, um, just I think it's important that uh, during this time, just Jenny and Nabil, just doing what you guys are doing, providing this uh, ability for the minds to come together and have this discussion, and for everybody watching to also be included is so important. Um, it's hard to gather information right now, and something like this is, is really, really beneficial. So thank you so much, um, and it's been a pleasure to, to be a part of it. Thank you. Uh, Nabil, you want to have final words? Um, I, I, I'm just so grateful for the panelists that came to join us today and share their knowledge, their wisdom, their time and effort. Um, you know, we pulled you off the front lines for us to, to, you know, to, to, to show everyone what we've been doing uh, to, the six, to the people from you know, all around the world, across the U.S. and 16 countries that were part of this conversation today. I hope you got some good tidbits and information. The resources that our panelists shared, links, we'll put that all together for you. So you'll have that. This will be recorded. It will be on the website. Um, thank you for being part of this. There's, I'm gonna share my screen for a second. Uh, 3D Heals is a great community to learn more about healthcare 3D printing. And if you found uh, our panelists of four or five people today, um, uh, amazing. I urge you to uh, be part of our 3D Heels 2020 conference. How many speakers will we be having? 50 plus. <laughs> I can't even count plus. now. So yeah. if um, we'll have 50 plus speakers of the caliber that you saw today, and it's literally going to be like breathing, like breathing, like 
drinking from the fire hose, breathing from the fire hose, right? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just thinking too much about respirators. Um, <laughs> so thank you all today. Thank you for being part of this. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you on future panels. Yeah, I want to thank also all the panelists today. I know some of you guys haven't slept like a whole night for many days. I know especially, you know, Nick and Stephanie, I know you guys are working just tirelessly on helping people. And, you know, 3D Heals, you know, we're trying to spread the message. And this is what we can do to contribute in this crisis. Um, so thank you very much for joining us and, and take time to talk to us. And I also want to thank all the audience uh, for joining in. I know a lot of experts in the audience. I can recognize some names from all over the world. And perhaps one day we can also invite you to join this conversation as well. And hopefully this crisis will be over and we'll have more exciting, awesome stuff to make. Thank you very much, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Take care.